The scripture is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 19. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Thank you, Katie. As you can see, we are taking a little break from our Genesis series. Um, periodically, the uh, trustees and the elders of our church gang up, and they take me aside, and they inform me that it's time to preach on money, a stewardship sermon, um, a sermon that communicates the significance, the value of tithing, that communicates the Christian duty of giving money to the church and to the advance of the kingdom. And so here we are again. It's approaching Thanksgiving. We're giving thanks. And the run-up to Christmas, people are making plans for their end-of-year giving. So this is the time for a stewardship sermon. But there's a danger. There is a huge spiritual danger in talking about money and the church. Um, the reason is, if we buy something, and we're habituated to this, if we buy something... We believe that we own it and control it. If we pay somebody money for work or a service, then they work for us. We control them. They owe us something in exchange. And when we think about money and the church, the danger is that we fall into this mentality 
that it's a transaction that we're doing with God. Money is about us giving God money and in exchange, he owes us. He performs a service for us. And the trouble is, that is exactly wrong. And by the way, you can see this. Um, when I was a seminary, one of the things that the professors noticed there was that in northern New Jersey, I, I went to Princeton Seminary, there were many, many beautiful churches, and we would go on tours of the churches, and you would go inside, and there was virtually nobody there. And the reason was, the rich, good people of New Jersey had got into the habit of not attending church, but donating to churches when they died. So you didn't have to deal with God your whole life. You'd spend your money. Right before you died, you sold up everything, made a big donation to the church, and that was your payment to get into heaven, bypassing all this fussiness about Christianity and worship. And so you had these big, beautiful, well-maintained churches, completely empty, because there was no life in them. Or you have churches that are filled with a false life. Um, as some of you know, I was in South Africa uh, on sabbatical. And one of the great tragedies about the spread of Christianity in uh, Africa and South Africa is how often it's the prosperity gospel or so-called gospel that's being proclaimed. I went to Soweto, which is the biggest shanty town in the world. Tens of millions of people living in shacks. And there, growing out of the middle of it, is this monstrosity, this big golden dome. It looks like a spaceship has landed in the middle of these millions and millions of people. And it's a church. And the pastor drives around uh, in expensive cars and wears $5,000 suits. And the message they preach is, if you give money to this church, God will make you rich like me. And these churches are spreading all over Africa. That is not good news. The idea that your relationship with God depends on money and whether or not you're wealthy is the measure of the quality of the relationship. The gospel is Christ has been given to us. First, God always goes first. And in exchange, out of joy, out of celebration, out of thankfulness, we owe him. Not we go first, pay money, and then he owes us. God always goes first. God is always the one that pays the price. And our response is our response, freely chosen. Now, a great place to see this, and this is why we're looking at Philippians, is Paul's letter to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote a lot of letters. You know, it was his habit to start new churches and then move on, and then he would communicate with them by letters. And oftentimes, his letters are kind of unhappy. The churches are doing something wrong, they're misusing the gospel, they're behaving in ways that are inappropriate, and he sort of chastises them. 
But that's not true of the Philippians letter. Philippians, the Philippian church, was one of Paul's great success stories. It was a happy church. It, thro- it was a thriving church, and it continued to support Paul throughout the rest of his life, sending helpers, sending food, sending money, helping him advance the kingdom. And so the letter to the Philippians is a joyful letter. And the source of their joy is this peace, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. They had not only heard Paul's gospel, but they had internalized it. And they recognized, if God is for us, who can be against If the Lord and creator of all things is on our side, if he loves us, if he's accepted us, then there is nothing to fear, nothing, not even death. And that creates a basic foundation of peace in a person's life, in a church's life. If you've got nothing to fear, you can live joyfully together. You can celebrate life. You can be generous and happy and joyful. And that's what the Philippians were all about. The gospel changes you. Some years ago, I heard on on the radio, uh, a counselor was talking about what it meant to be a counselor. And um, he proposed an ideal for the perfect counselor. And he said, a perfect counselor is a self-defined, non-anxious presence. Which, when you first hear it, seems a bit, I don't know. But as you think about it, he's absolutely right. You don't want a counselor or somebody in your life who's filled with angst, who's as screwed up as you are, who's as troubled about things as you are, who is anxious. You want someone who is defined not by their circumstances, or by their job, or by the bad things that are happening in the world. But they have a source of identity independent of that. And they're not anxious about anything. They're not bringing their problems, their baggage, into the relationship. And when you're like that, you can help other people. If you're self-defined, you don't need them. You're not entangled with their problems. And therefore, you can be objective and speak the truth. Especially, you're not entangled with them monetarily. If you're counseling for a fee, there's always a problem. You've got to perform. A person who is self-defined doesn't have to perform. And therefore, is there because they want to be there and they have something to offer. And you're not anxious. If you don't have to perform... If you're not defined by what happens, if you're only there to give help, then you don't need the other person to like you even, or to affirm you, to make you feel worthy. You find the meaning and purpose of counseling within yourself, and therefore you're self-defined and you're not anxious. Well, that is a perfect description, I think, of what Paul is talking about here. A Christian is a God-defined, non-anxious presence in the world. We're called Christians because we're defined by our relationship with Christ and with God through him. We are part of the family 
That's our new identity now. And therefore, there is nothing in this world, finally, that we need to be afraid. We are not anxious. We have a meaning, a purpose, an identity that transcends our circumstances, our background, our work, where we live, that transcends the things that define most people who are mainly anxious. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul is saying, elevate your sight. Don't be looking down and grubbing around in this world. Find things to dwell on, to define yourself by, that are bigger than this world. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. You know, I've, I've seen this in only two classes of people. I'm sure there are others, but these are the only two that I've ever seen have this quality. Uh, Christians, real Christians, who've uh, integrated the gospel into their life. And artists, real artists, who live for something other than the day-to-day. When I first came to New York as an intern, I was worship leading at uh, Redeemer Manhattan, at that time a big church. And I met a remarkable woman there, uh, Denita. And Denita, she was an older woman, she was in her late 40s. Uh, she'd been at the church for a long time, and uh, she's observed ministers like me, fresh out of seminary. At that point, I wasn't ordained. I was on my way to ordination. And she thought that, by and large, they were unprepared for New York. Specifically, they were pathetically undereducated about the arts, which for her was one of the defining qualities of New York. And so Danina was no shrinking violet. Uh, she came up to me after... A service. I was the first intern, so I was like the experimental fresh meat. And she said, I would like to educate you. I'm going to show you the artistic world of New York. Um, and so she started taking, she spent a whole summer taking me to exhibits, to performances, to shows in Manhattan and the village, but also in Williamsburg. And it was amazing. She'd been an artist most of her adult life. She was actually, before she became a Christian, she was part of the lesbian art scene down in the village. She was a dancer, a poet, an activist. Her ex-girlfriend won the MacArthur Genius Award. She had this amazing apartment in Tribeca. It was all so wonderfully and wildly glamorous and exotic. And uh, it was just an amazing time. And she took me to all these different people and all these different friends. And she was never didactic, but she just talked and talked and talked and tried to get me to recognize the quality that defined the artistic community. Now, there is a lot of darkness in the artistic community of New York, a lot of darkness and perversion and plain old craziness. But there is something else as well. There are a lot of very dedicated people who are extraordinarily generous with themselves. It is an act of extraordinarily, extraordinary generosity to be an artist. Because for the most part, the world does not like artists. And so to be an artist is mainly to suffer. One of my favorites uh, was a dancer called Maya. 
she was a, a major in engineering and dance. And uh, she was very passionate about dance. But as she said so herself, she didn't have the right body shape for it. She was from European peasant stock, which means big butt, big hips, big boobs. And she never got hired, not once. Nobody wanted her in their dances. And so uh, she was passionate about it, though. It was her art. And so she began to put on her own shows, to choreograph her own dances. And she would work, thankless jobs mainly, save enough, enough money, money to rent a rehearsal space, hire other dancers, pay them, rent a performance space, put on a show, and then declare bankruptcy, essentially. And that was her pattern. She did that all the way into her 40s when I knew her. And she just kept, that was her life. The last time I saw her, she, it was about 10 years ago. She was um, married, a bit of an iffy husband, but a good a baby who was, she was very happy with her child. And she invited me to a show at the Y in the Manhattan. And the show was this amazing piece with women who looked like her in their 40s with good peasant bodies. And she had them all dressed up like ninjas. And they had these elaborate black baby Bjorns with babies in them. And to the music of Mission Impossible, they did these amazing kind of uh, Tom Cruise stunts. But instead of stealing computer secrets or diamonds or whatever, bombs, they exchanged their babies with each other with these elaborate, exquisite moves, untying and tying up these baby Bjorns. It was wonderful. I loved it. There were about 30 people there. It was free entrance, so she didn't make any money, and I'm sure she went bankrupt after it and had to think about it again. Artists have this call, this desire, a hunger, a need, and it makes them do crazy things, but it also makes them generous to give, to not worry about their circumstances, to not worry about money, to not worry about how the world views them because they're defined by something bigger. You know, right now, our brother, Jerry Rago, is doing exactly the same thing as Meyer in Manhattan. He's not going to make any money. He might go bankrupt. But he's offering himself, he's putting himself out there as an act of generosity. Now, if artists can do that, why don't Christians? After all, we have a call from something far more solid than the abstractions of art. We have a personality and a real relationship on offer. We have a community and a family that will love us and support us. One of the great tragedies of the artistic community in New York is just how lonely many of the artists are. We don't have to suffer that. And we can enjoy each other's success and we can together enjoy each other's generosity. Verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. It sounds, this translation is not so good, that at last you renewed your concern as if they hadn't been thinking about him, and then, you know, they, out of a sense of duty, they remembered him. But that word renewed, is a very rare poetic word. This is the only place it appears in the Bible. 
and it refers to new life blossoming, you know, the blossoming of flowers in springtime. Uh, it's about something growing where there was nothing before. And so it'd be much better to translate this as how wonderful your care for me is blossoming afresh, something like that. But this is another example of the generosity of the Philippians. And although Paul is going to go on and show that he doesn't need their help, he depends on God, not them, he can recognize the beauty of watching other Christians through the gospel becoming generous, blossoming, giving new life to the world. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Once again, a very specific word, content. This is a discipline, a philosophy, a way of living. It's a word that was used of other philosophers in Greece, of the Stoics and the Cynics, who try to get through life by gritting their teeth or by just saying, who cares? And Paul is saying, no, I've learned to get through life joyfully because I am being taken care of. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul had, independent of the Philippians, although he recognized it in them too, a self-sufficient joy that did not depend on his circumstance, didn't depend if he was hungry or thirsty, didn't depend on having a warm, comfortable home, didn't depend on whether people liked him. Paul was persecuted and beaten up many times, thrown into jail, thrown out of town. And yet he had this peace, this joy that was bubbling up in the very center of his heart like a spring because of his relationship with Christ. Paul has learned to trust the Christ that he serves. And it's the source of his generosity. It's the reason that he could go anywhere and do anything independent of how dangerous or difficult it seemed. Now, how do we live like that? How do we make this real? The first thing is to recognize just how potent money is. Because what money does, if you have a lot of it, it makes you think you don't need anybody else. And if you don't have much of it, what it makes you think is you need to please people and do things that will get you money to in order to be happy. When I um, counsel couples who are getting married, and you might snigger, after all, I'm not married, but one of the things that I have learned, I took a course to t learn this, by the way. Uh, one of the deep, dark secrets about married people is money. Number one cause of problems in divorce is money. Why? Because money points at our heart. It tells us what's going on in our heart, and the priorities of our heart are reflected in how we spend money or don't spend money. One of the central insights of Christianity is that our hearts are broken. They are not integrated, they are not whole, they are not unified, and they produce contradictory 
and foolishly conflicted desires because they're broken. And the way we spend money reveals those contradictory desires. You're on a diet, but you see the perfect donut, and you have to buy it. And one part of you knows you don't want to do that, and the other part is spending the money like it's no problem. And you think that what you need is to settle down with somebody and be happy. But part of you still wants to go and see the world. Part of you wants to live in exotic places. Our hearts don't make sense. And the way we spend money reveals that nonsense, reveals the brokenness. One of the first things I always ask a couple to do is separately to write down a list of the ten things that they will think they will spend the most money on in the first year of marriage. And you make them do this separately because it reveals what they think. And then you come back together and you compare the lists. And if he thinks a brand new set of pink golf clubs is the number one item, and she thinks a set of porcelain teeth overlays is the number one item, then you've got a problem. A problem that's going to show up in the first year of marriage. By the way, I met, I, I didn't do the wedding, but I did meet a woman who insisted, um, before she was going to get married, she wanted a $10,000 set of porcelain overlays for her teeth. So her teeth would match her wedding dress. And she, she got it. The marriage did not last very long, by the way, as I heard later. But uh, she did get that number one on her list. Every one of those items is a conflict. Every one of those things reveals two sinful hearts that are going in different directions. And only by unifying, focusing, only by bringing those lists and desires together are you going to have a happy first year. Now, people get through marriage, even when it's awful. But wouldn't it be better if it was joyful and happy that you weren't arguing about golf clubs and porcelain overlays and whether or not you're going to do the sink or the bedroom as the first item of repairing your house? For many people, for many couples, this is one of the hardest things to integrate their finances. Because especially in Manhattan, they tend to be professional people. They're used to having their own money and control of their own lives and finances. And even partially to a person you love, giving up control is hard. And so the best way in for many Christian couples is to think about tithing. If you're fighting for your golf clubs or you're fighting for your porcelain inlays, it's all about you. But when you start talking about what do you love about the church? What do you love about missionaries who are advancing the kingdom? What do you think about Jesus in your life? Then instead of it being all about you, it becomes about you together in relationship with Christ and the church. And it is a fact, they teach us this at seminary, the best people to have in church are newly married couples. Before they have children and they start worrying about college, get them in the church, get them thinking about their relationship with money and the church, and they will begin to support the church. Because couples talk to each other. Couples make plans together. Single people don't, by the way. So if that's what couples do, what should you do in your relationship with Christ? Remember, it's a marriage. It's for life. 
There are many ways the Bible talks about our relationship with God. You know, we're a royal priesthood, that we're a flock and he's the shepherd, that we are a temple, that we are a building and building blocks. But one of the most beautiful is this image, it's in Ephesians, where Paul compares our relationship with God to the marriage of a man and a woman, each made perfect for each other, sacrificing for each other, preparing to live with each other forever. And when you think what each of you is bringing to that relationship, it puts in perspective this idea of giving to the church. What do we bring? A few books, TV maybe, car, an apartment, perhaps a 401k somewhere, fickle hearts, doubts, second thoughts, selfishness, oh, and death. That's what we bring in. What does Jesus bring in? Eternal life. The name above all names, which is given to us so we can call ourselves Christians. All the riches of heaven. Unlimited access to God the Father in prayer. A new relationship. No longer distant God, but our Father. And Jesus now at his right hand intervening on our behalf. That's what he brings into the relationship. It's a pretty good deal. It's a pretty good relationship to have. And once you internalize the reality and significance of it, it is going to bring a peace that is going to transcend all human understanding. Because nothing can shake it. There is not a thing that can happen to you for the rest of your life that can fundamentally shake that relationship. And that's what Christianity is. You know, back when I was a teenager, I got in the habit of uh, trying to get away every summer and travel. And um, after one trip, I came, came back, and I was, I guess I was 19 or 20, something like that. And I came back, and, and there was the home just as I remembered it. And then my dad happened to mention... Oh, it'd be nice if you kicked in some money to buy food. 50 pounds a month, let's say, just to put food on the table. Now, 50 pounds a month, even back then, wasn't very much. But I was upset. My goodness, I was really upset. I was sulky and sullen. I felt like I'd lost my family. I'd gone from being a son to being a rentier that they didn't value me anymore, that I had to pay for my presence. I mean, I acted up. I was really, really unhappy. I felt like an outcast, like something had fundamentally changed, that I had to now pay for my family. But my dad watched me for a while, and then he said this. He said, there's another way of thinking about this. Now, instead of thinking about yourself as having been kicked out and having to pay your way back into the family, that now you're an adult, and now you're invited, being invited, to participate in maintaining this family life that we have. You are now being asked to grow up and take responsibility for your identity in this family. This is not a rejection. This is the beginning of a whole new relationship. It's the beginning of responsibility. It's the beginning of adulthood. It is a bit of the beginning of becoming part of the family 
and upholding the family, the family name, the family identity. And it's amazing that that little shift had completely changed my appreciation of my family and my role in it. When you hear the word stewardship, I don't know how you think about it. It can be a dry, harsh world. Dry, harsh word. But what it really is, is a way for you to take on the family name, the family business, expanding the kingdom of God, to be becoming a responsible part of advancing the kingdom. About taking your place alongside other Christians through all times and places who have taken responsibility for their churches, who have deliberately advanced the kingdom, who have supported ministries and missionaries, who have got involved in new Christian projects. That's what we're invited to participate in. And that is where we find that peace that passes all understanding. Once you internalize the gospel, you'll find that peace. And once it's there, generosity will blossom. It's a sign that the Spirit is at work in you. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that if you have been so generous with yourself to us. We thank you that you didn't count the cost when you came to find us, but you have opened up yourself unlimitedly to all our pain and suffering, to all our needs, to all our hungers and desires. Lord, um, help us be generous in response. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.